0: The most valuable asset that we've got in this company is the product, and the second most valuable is the website. And it's, there's no question, our website is is responsible for uh, so much of the performance of the marketing team. Something like eighty percent of our leads come inbound, which is you know amazing for a B two B SaaS company.
1: Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Today we have Giles Palmer, who is the founder and CEO of Brandwatch, which is an online media monitoring company, plus more, which I'll let him explain in a second. But Giles, how's it going?
0: It's going well, thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me on the uh, on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us. So why don't you give us a little background? I mean, what's your story, man?
0: Yeah, I never know when to start this one, right? Um, but let's start in the uh, year two thousand. It's a bit of a long time ago, but I'll whisk through it quickly. I was working for a large company, Sky, uh, which is a TV company, uh, paid subscription TV company in the UK. I was in my late twenties. I'd been through the kind of private school, good university, all that kind of thing. I felt a little bit kind of like processed British beef, to be honest. And then I, I kind of, I was working in a joint venture team there, and. We did a deal with a company, and they ended up raising a whole bunch of money off the back of this deal. And I just thought, I I don't want to be in this corporate gig anymore. So I I left Sky, and with a with a friend of mine, we tried to set up a. Uh, a business which which failed very quickly within three months. I lost uh, lost some money, but it was a really it, it made me realise that I needed to I needed to be an entrepreneur. So I I met somebody throughout through that process, and he and I and two of his friends started a business in 2000 with like no idea what what we were doing. Hang, hang on a sec. Let me just ask somebody to be be quiet. Sure. Thanks. Uh, and. So we started this business. um, We were building open source software for for organizations. We did developed content management systems. We built an online school. Uh, We were guns for hire. And for the first five years of the 2000s, We were a bunch of guys, called ourselves web engineers, we ran it as a kind of a pseudo-collective. It was, you know, it was, we started off saying, like, we'll all get paid exactly the same amount of money, no matter what job we did. That didn't last very long, as some people were like, well, I'm more valuable than him, so why do I get paid the same as him? So that kind of was an interesting social experiment. And after about five years of learning how to build software, I wanted to build a product company, at that point, we had a piece of software which which was effectively a search engine and i want, I wanted to know i wanted to, I was trying to figure out what to do with it so it was the days it was this was two thousand and six, and there was a kind of explosion of what 's now become called social media uh, back then it was called uh, user generated content and Technorati was this big blog po- blog search engine. That was, you know, in the news the whole time and people were blogging all over the place. Forums were reasonably big deal in the UK. And then Twitter kind of came about, uh, launched and YouTube launched and was bought by Google. And there was definitely something going on. So I had this idea that um, brands needed to understand what all of these voices of these consumers were actually saying about them and their competition. And I came up with this kind of name, brand watch, couldn't ever think of anything better, ended up buying the domain name for $5,000. And me and a small team, which we still had in the company, like eight or nine people, built a brand tracking or a sentiment engine on top of this search engine that we'd built. And we launched it in August 2007 managed to get a bit of traction but basically just i've been working on that for the last 10 years it's it's crazy how how that time has just um gone by and you know there's loads of ups and downs during that period which we can we can come back to but broadly it's been a 10-year process of building you know what i think of still as almost version one of the initial vision um and now the company is 440 people and you know we've got uh, this year last year we did over 50 million dollars in revenues and and so on and so forth. So, so it's, it's, it's got to a decent scale at this point, but it all came from that kind of initial idea, which is probably the only decent idea I've ever had. Um, <laughs> and we got lucky, right? You know, the market kind of came to us a little bit. Back then, there wasn't really such a thing as online listening um, or social listening, which is what we get called. There's a little bit more to it than that. But now it seems like it's a category and Forrester write a report on it and so on and so forth.
1: Love it. Okay. So here's the flow chart I'm hearing. So, you know, weren't, you weren't happy at your corporate job in your late 20s. You ended up leaving and then you guys kind of started like a, like an agency. Is that correct?
0: That's right. Like a tech agency where we're all just kind of geeks hanging out talking about open source software. Okay. Trying to figure out whether there was a business model in there.
1: And what, what was the timeline from there to starting Brandwatch again? Uh, six years. Six years. Okay. Got it. And then you started Brandwatch and then now you guys $50 million plus and then uh, 440 employees, right? Exactly. Cool. Wonderful. All right. Yeah. So, how do you guys make money?
0: <laughs> well, actually, December was the first month in about five years where we actually have made money. Uh, <laughs> we've been burning money for the previous five years. Oh, we've raised fifty million dollars. So, um, okay, got it. Yeah, or actually, even more than that, but round about that number. But now we're. We've still got enough of it left, and thankfully we're we're into the we're into the black now. So, um, so how do we make money? It's a subscription business, simply. Customers use Brandwatch to track them, their own brands, their competitors, do some market research around cohorts of uh, consumers, uh, and they pay a subscription. They pay for as as a subscription for that service, um, and the amount they pay varies on the amount of data that they consume.
1: Got it. Okay, and what do I guess what does the, the average pricing
0: look like? It's I think the average pricing is 2500 pounds per month. Got it.
1: Cool. So you're you're mainly targeting kind of mid market to enterprise.
0: Yeah, exactly, right. We tend to be. It's not an enterprise-wide solution because it, it it's reasonably targeted to a specific set of use cases. I mean, it does get used across multiple departments, but it's not a workflow tool. So I don't really think of it as an as an enterprise system. But we do target professional users because it's it's a pretty significant application. Like you know, it's not a, it's not a toy sort of thing. So it's it's not cheap. So absolutely right, mid-market to enterprise-grade customers in variety of departments, but mainly marketing and around market research. Wonderful.
1: Okay, so how did you? I mean, in early days, how did you go about acquiring? Let's just say your first hundred and fifty customers.
0: Yeah. So the first we sold the first uh, subscription in the month after we launched. So we launched in August two thousand and seven, um, but we didn't sell the second subscription until January two thousand eight. So you know, on that rate, um, the business was not going to last very long. Uh, and back at, back then, it was primarily me going out and and meeting people face to face multiple times, often, and and showing them the product, and them saying, "Oh, this looks really interesting," but we don't have budget for it, or I've never seen anything like this before, or you know, not quite sure how we'd use it. So there was there was quite a lot of I don't know what the right word is, but education probably, uh, customer education, which which in hindsight was horrifically kind of, it was quite painful, but at the time you just do it whatever it takes. And then what we found was the early adopters tended to be agencies, like digital agencies in the UK, who tended to be back then, and still to a degree are today, a little bit further down the road than the the brands um, in the work that they do uh, on digital. And they would give us a project to. They would say, "Look, we want we want to do a piece of research here or there, and that we want to, we want to understand this market, or we want to understand how consumers are behaving over there." And we would use our own product to do that research, and then write a report for them. And what what it became clear that our product wasn't flexible enough. So we built version two. It was a much more flexible product, and then we started selling it, kind of, with an inside sales team. So we hired a couple of. Very cheap salespeople. It's all we could afford, and we started to get a little bit of inbound to the website, and you know we would convert roughly one in ten of those inbound inquiries. And then what we did was gradually build up the build up the marketing side of the business. I would speak at events, uh, and then we would hire salespeople, and they would all, nearly always be the most successful salespeople we've had. Even today have been grads that we've trained up over the course of a year or so. And like what the, the most successful salesperson or sales a year that we've ever had was a 24-year-old or 25-year-old young woman who'd been with us for two years, uh, and she sold over 100 accounts in one year. Wow. And, and And so we got we got this machine of inside sales demos and then sign ups and, and free trials and then and then and then paid 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 subscriptions. We got that machine kind of working over the first three or four years and then we started wrapping kind of community managers around it where we do outbound targeted uh, outreach alongside the inbound stuff from the website and even today we get fifteen thousand unique visitors to our website every day and over a hundred demo requests and so there's still a, a large inside sales engine which drives most of the new customer acquisition
1: got it wonderful so what's working so you guys have this this sales machine right now Uh, what's effective or what's working really well for you in terms of marketing today
0: what's working super well on marketing is big big long-term programs so the the website in multiple languages you know when, when our cmo joined us about four or five years ago he said, the first thing he said almost was the most valuable asset that we've got in this company is the product and the second most valuable is the website. And it's, there's no question our website is is responsible for uh, so much of the performance of the marketing team. Something like 80% of our leads come inbound, which is you know amazing for a B2B SaaS company. And that's been a long-term investment. So we have content writers. We have an internal web dev team. The website is in four different languages. And we maintain it all ourselves. So the website works really, really well, and we're constantly evolving it. What's also worked well, and and it's only worked well because we've got to the scale that we've got to, and we can afford it, is is this user conference that we put together, which we branded. Now you know NYK. It's a thing internally. People talk about are you going to NYK? And uh, you know, as a as a kind of an internal kind of question, and people put now you know at the bottom of their emails. Now you know is a kind of an internal mantra within the company because we're a research company primarily or, or we're a research application. So, and, and we get something like five or 600 visitors that last year to each of the two events we do, we do one in the US and one in, in the UK. And they came off the back of what we call masterclasses. So for the first four or five, five well, actually more, probably seven years, we did these masterclasses, which started off with webinars. Then we would, then we would gather groups of people together for an afternoon and teach them how to use the product and they would share stories with each other and people love them. Our users love them. And then, and then we kind of rolled it out into a bigger one day conference called now, you know, and now it's a two day conference both in, uh, in the U in the U S and the UK. And so and that that's been amazing for brand awareness and retention of customers and education of customers, but it's really expensive. So, I think it depends on where, where a company is in its journey. In the early days, I think masterclasses and webinars and how-tos and educational services and marketing to your existing customer base is so important because as you as you scale, churn becomes the big hairy monster that will, will stop you getting to where you want to get to. So b- building in... Processes and educational systems that help customers get the most out of your product right from day one sets you up for long term success. Or at least, with hindsight, I can I can kind of look at it that way. At the time, we didn't quite realize that was gonna that was the main method. That was the main purpose of these educational uh, kind of seminars. But but it it has been super important as we scale the business.
1: Love it. Okay, and you guys acquired Buzzsumo. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Cool. So Neil and I, uh, Neil Patel and I, talk about it a lot on our other podcast, Marketing School, about how we use it so much. So I guess what was kind of the the reason for acquiring BuzzSumo, and I guess um, yeah, we'll start with that first.
0: Yeah. So pretty much what you just said, actually, it's very rare. that I I don't know about you, but I find it quite unusual to come across a product that I just think is amazingly good. And Buzzsumo is amazingly good. I've been speaking to, and it's an unbelievable story. There's really, it it was three people that built that company. I mean, when we acquired it, there were ten. So there were there were there were there were lots more involved, and and those guys were important to the to the to the scaling of the business. But actually, the underlying business was kind of founded by three people. Two built it: one front end engineer, one back end engineer, and a marketer. One of these guys was in New York, one was in London, and one was in Brighton, which is where we are on the south coast of the UK. They didn't meet each other very often. They'd never met each other before they started the business together. In fact, the marketer found the other two guys because they'd put together a beta system in their spare time. And I'm not even sure they'd ever even met face to face. Uh, When we acquired the business, they didn't have an office. They didn't have a single salesperson. It was unbelievably skinny, modern, efficient, all of those kind of good words. It was a a business with an incredible product, great, great people, very lean, absolutely no wasted time or energy inside the business and just like really an example of how to build a fantastic self-serve tool which is used by 3,500 customers and has 400,000 freemium users like it's like it's got scale this this thing and I've been speaking to their one of the founders for a couple of years because he's local and I know him a little bit and I've been trying to convince him to sell his company for two years eventually he said look Giles we've got to either Professionalize this and hire lots of salespeople or customer success people, and and take it to the next level, and possibly raise some money and bringing in a professional CEO because he didn't want to do that job, or we join up with somebody else and 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 do it under their umbrella. So they were looking; they'd had lots of different offers. They were looking for a culture fit. And I think that's what they found with us. They found a company that was going to value them, was going to allow them to carry on building what they were building, but with our support and with, with some of the things that we've learned with our marketing and, and our sales engine behind it. So, you know, we came to a deal very, very quickly, like in in a week or two, and then just did it. So, uh, that the other reason, from our point of view, was I've been wanting to have a self-serve product for years, but... All of our developers and our salespeople were like, "Well, why on earth? Are you, why would we want to build a self serve product when we're selling to medium to large organizations who don't really give a damn about that kind of thing?" Um, and we want to be building more things which are going to be useful to them, not building self serve products. I'm not sure that the two are mutually exclusive, but uh, I, I just thought I was more scared about being attacked from below, and I also wanted to have a, an engine like a marketing, an engine, a scaling engine that was, you know, product-driven. So I just thought this is perfect. This this ticks so many boxes, and it actually extends our product as well because they've got the most incredible data on shares uh, of any of any product on the web. So, so there were just so many reasons. And what's most pleasing for me actually is I think from our side we haven't screwed it up, uh, which is <laughs> sounds a bit weird. <laughs> but I think we were most worried about actually screwing up this great company that we that we bought and and pissing off the people that that. That are working there, so we've we've put in one of our absolute rock stars to be a kind of a a part time COO. So she kind of like runs it, or or general manager. So she kind of runs it and is the conduit between Buzzsumo and Brandwatch. She's also VP of strategy for Brandwatch, so she's very embedded in our in our business. And she and the and the guys at Buzzsumo get on really well. And so so far, so far, so they've beaten all their targets since we acquired them. And I think that they're, they're pretty happy with with the way things are going. And we're not going to uh, our, our our task is not to is not to interfere too much, but to gently support them in their ongoing journey. Love it. And Giles,
1: what was the? I mean, could you give us a rough range of what the sale price was?
0: Didn't actually go. We didn't go with the um with the. We didn't go public with it. So. Um, it was not single digit millions and it and it was and it was not high tens sort of thing so that's the kind of range got it cool all right great yeah i mean uh, hopefully it was a great result for the for their founders and and a terrific uh, acquisition for us so i think it's a win win but but it did it did take up a bunch of our cash that's for sure
1: well, Neil and I uh, Neil, and I can only hope that uh, we, we get to keep our comp account so uh, here 's to that <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we use it a lot anyway so um, yeah, tell us about one big struggle you faced while
0: growing this business yeah, sure. The internationalization of the business um, for other people uh, i 've heard is always has been you know a big struggle for us it 's actually not been the biggest issue uh, we had an amazing guy start up uh, our a u.s operation seb hempstead and he he took it from zero to a million dollars in one year which was pretty incredible um and and our product market fit's been good in other in other geos as well so our german business is going well our business in france and in singapore is good too so so the geo expansion has been been not it's it's yeah, there've been bumps, but it's not been super difficult. I think coming up with long-term product vision and strategy for the company uh, to give everybody a sense of where we're going, whilst being nimble and agile, and uh, you know, adding things um, as quickly as we can. That's that's a challenge. Making big bets and being disruptive and 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 building really interesting software is not easy. You have to take risks. And often, if they don't go right, then there's a sense of "Oh well, you guys are falling behind but uh so 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 I think for me personally, like really nailing the long term strategy but still being nimble and agile, that balance I find incredibly difficult uh, i think we're getting better because because we've hired people to help me with strategy, and they've put more structure around it and and we report on it more regularly. Uh, so that's been a massive challenge. Uh, another challenge has been scaling out the product and engineering departments. You know, um, hiring product people in the U.K. has been really tough. We've homegrown a lot of people, but um, like it's a new discipline, uh, I would say, in the U.K., pro, you know, software, SaaS, product management. It's not easy. You have to be, you know, across lots of different things, uh, product market research, competitive research. You've got to understand technology. You've got to be a bit entrepreneurial you've got to be a marketer. I mean, it's not easy. So finding great product people has been very challenging. Getting them, getting the engineering team to scale has also been challenging. So all of the kind of classic things around building a software business, for me personally, I would say the most challenging thing is has been evolving myself uh, at a rate that was necessary as the company grew so you know in the early days i would describe myself as the chief belief officer so i had to believe everybody Like nobody thought we were gonna none of the staff really thought we were gonna kind of get there or and i just re- relentlessly was positive and 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 had this kind of sense that well if no i don't give a damn if nobody believes i do and we're going to do this and then it started happening and then i had to move to a kind of a a chief i don't know what at that point but but probably somebody who tried to get money in the door and 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 make sure we didn't make too many mistakes and and work on the product side with our engineering team and then as we've scaled i've brought in a, a senior team to to surround me who are all terrific and now and now i'm finding that i have to evolve again and and become a collaborative coach bit type leader and uh, i'm just not very good at that so I'm really having to kind of work hard on myself to, to be, to level up, to become the leader that the company needs through the next phase. And I hope I can do it. Um, but it's not, it's not easy. So, so I think that, um, there are different times when different things have, have been challenging. And right now I'm, I'm finding like personal evolution being the most challenging bit of, of everything. Cause the business is is pretty stable and, and, and doing really well. So it's like, okay, Giles, what the hell? Are you, how are you going to become a you know, next level leader?
1: Well, that, that's a good segue, actually. I mean, how are you getting better personally?
0: Yeah, so I've I've had some coaching from two different coaches. That's been helpful. We're getting a coach to help work with our senior team because a couple of them are reasonably new and we haven't worked together for very long. So, so that's critical. I'm I've I've deliberately putting more time in my calendar for reflection I'm trying to be more mindful when I can when I can I I I join in the kind of the daily meditation sessions here in the early in the morning I'm just trying to basically just be a a better human being which I think ends up making me a better leader Uh, and it's it's a journey right it's not easy um and I'm I'm not in my 20s anymore I'm in my 40s so it's kind of yeah, I I look I look in the mirror more than look around my look around to my team and think you know this is on you, mate. You've got to you've got to level up. You've got to improve yourself before you can expect the the company to like go to the next level.
1: Love it. Okay, well, final question: What is one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone?
0: I normally uh, I normally like the book that I'm reading last because my memory's so so terrible. So. The book that I'm reading right now is great. I would totally recommend it. It's Anti-Fragile by Nicholas Taleb. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting book. Uh, what did I read recently? Uh, this five Dysfunctions, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I think it was called. Uh, that was interesting, uh, especially when you're looking at team dynamics. But yeah, those are my, those are my two two recently. And then I read before that I read Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, which I loved as well. But that's not very really business orientated
1: no worries at all we'll drop all three of those into the show notes so giles or giles i should say giles what's the best way for people to find you online
0: i'm uh, Judo nine j-o-o-d-o-o-9 which is the name of my five-year-old daughter's imaginary friend back in the day so there's another story behind that or i'm giles at com.
1: all right giles thanks so much for doing this pleasure good to
0: talk to you cheers